Listening to sermons as we go about our days, driving around or doing our work, is a perfect reminder of our Lord's promises and of His mercies. This is the mission of Upper Room Media. To make the Word of God accessible to anybody and everybody. Important discussion, okay? Um, you might not think it's too important for now, but like as you grow up and you start realizing things and you start asking yourselves certain questions, you'll realize that this is a huge discussion for something that we really have to understand, okay? It has to do... So how many denominations do we have in the churches, generally speaking? How many? Denominations. Do you know what that is? No. No? Okay. So what type of Christianities do we have? Maybe it's a different... So we can say we have three main ones. Okay, so who are we talking about? Okay, so Protestants, okay. Mm. Catholic, okay. And Orthodox. Okay, these are the three main ones. But in the Orthodox Church, so what does it mean to be Orthodox? Yes. Orthodox means in a straight line. So like towards the target in a straight line. Very good. So that's the idea that we are a people that were discipled by God himself when he was incarnate in the flesh. He gave us a life that we're trying to live until now and we do not deviate left or right from it. Okay, as much as we possibly can. Okay? The Catholic Church, the Catholic Church is a very, very beautiful church. Okay, full of mysteries. There's salvation in it. Okay, there's definitely salvation. What's, how do we know that there's really salvation in a place? Like, you know, you know, people argue all the time, this and that, oh, I'm right, I'm wrong even in different religions and stuff like that. But how do you know in Christianity if this place or this church will bring us truly to heaven? And it's a very simple answer. You want to think about it? But it's a very, very simple answer. Hmm. There's God's presence in it. Yeah. That's, you're, right. you're on the right path. But what does that mean? So if God is present, what will be the consequences of this. Peace. Hmm? peace. Peace. Yeah, very good. But the problem with peace is that there's a heavenly peace and there's also an earthly peace. Right? The problem with joy, the problem with all of these things is that there's there are heavenly ones and, and human or earthly ones. So people say, well, yeah, I have peace. I enjoy God. I felt something. Okay, that's great. What does that mean? And it's very personal. So I can I can feel I can be an atheist and feel earthly joy, right? But that means nothing, right? But so there's something else that that our church and other churches are like they they point towards. Hmm. It's actually a very very easy answer, and you have plenty of them all around you, right? Right here, the saints. It's that simple, right? So. Yeah, was the icons, are, that's why I was saying all around us. So the icons are representations of the saints. They make the saints present, okay? A saint, is he a saint or she is, is a saint because today they chose to become saints? Right? Is it, is it a mental activity? No, right? So I can know songs by heart. I can know verses by heart. I can do a bunch of things, right? And I declare myself to be a Christian, but these are all very theoretical, right? When I, it comes to the real deal, if someone is telling, like, again, putting a gun to my head or doing whatever it is, 
and telling me I'm gonna kill you if you do not renounce your Christianity, right? Oh, do I know all of the stuff? I know all of the theory. When it comes to, the, to these real events, I might find myself to buckle under the pressure and let go and deny God, which happens. Like, you know, Saint Damiana, as a saint, yeah, she's a beautiful, she's a huge saint in the church. Her father denied Christ. So he wanted, like he was told to renounce Christ or he would die. And he did renounce Christ. So she wrote him a letter renouncing him. Tell him you're not my father anymore. Unless you repent and go back to the emperor and declare your Christianity, which he did and he died because of it. So he was a martyr at the end. But where do you find that strength? Is it in something theoretical? No. It's in deep, true union with God. So when you find real saints, right? So when you see the Papa Krolluses of the world, right? The Marigagrises of the world. And we see in the Catholic Church a bunch of saints as well. The, the saints in the Catholic Church are real. They're real saints. They're heavy hitters because they have true unity with God. Like the Orthodox ones, right? Why is that? Because there's a liturgy. Because there's a Eucharist. Because there's unity. Because like there's confession. Because of all of these things, the life that God gave us, we find that His people lived it. So Christian life is not something that is theoretical. It's something that is lived. So when I learn something theoretical, like I'm teaching you now, what's the purpose of this? To know stuff? To answer people? To debate people? No. It's to take it and to live by it. That's why one of the mottos that I really, really like is to know your faith, live your faith, and teach your faith. If you skip the middle one, knowing your faith and teach your faith, then it's all very theoretical. Might as well go to school and learn some stuff, and, but that's not the idea. It ought to be lived first and foremost. And that's why we have in the church something called discipleship. Like what is it that we're doing with you now, right? And throughout the last year and so on, we're trying to disciple you, to form your souls. You hear me say this all the time. Shape your soul. Understand what is it that you not only believe in, but you must also live. And that's what the church does, which is the body of Christ. And through liturgy and all these mysteries, we're able to partake of that life. So you see this very clearly in the Orthodox churches. Orthodox churches, are not, I don't mean only Coptic. Yeah, Russians, Greeks, Serbians, Ethiopians, Syrians, a bunch of churches. Their faith are the same, Right? But they have different ethnicities, different cultures, right? But there's two main groups. You guys know the differences between those groups? So there's two main groups of Orthodox families. There's the Eastern Orthodox and the Oriental Orthodox. We are part of the Oriental family. So the Oriental families, right, is the Coptic Church, the Syrian Church, the Armenian Church, the Indian Orthodox Church, the Ethiopian, the Eritrean Church, Right? These are the Oriental family of Orthodoxy. The Eastern are more in number, mainly because of Russia. Because Russia is like the whole country is Orthodox, right? So you have Russia, you have Greece, you have Serbia, you have Romania, you have a bunch of like all of these Eastern European countries. They're all part of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Unfortunately, these two groups, although their faith is 99.9% .9 the same, 
We're currently not in Tamim, some in some places locally, because something happened in the fifth century, a bit of misunderstanding with, with theology, although we believe the same thing, but it was a bunch of misunderstanding, a bunch of people that wanted to become in power that caused issues, so it led to a division, okay? But today, both groups, because they've held very strongly to their faith from the beginning, even if we've been disconnected for 1,500 years, you come, you compare the faith, the faith is the same, because each one stuck or held on to the faith from the beginning. Okay? The Catholic Church, like if I had to, I don't know, not rate the Church, but if we, if we give a percentage of similarity between the Orthodox Churches and the Catholic Church, we're talking about like in the 90%. Okay? So something very, very, very similar. We have things that are different. One of them is a bit major because it's theological. Other ones are a bit less, but there still are differences there. Things like, you know, they say, for example, that St. Mary is born without sin. So it's, there's something called the Immaculate Birth of St. Mary. No, we say no, like she, she, she is born with sin, she's almost a perfect human being, right? But she still required salvation. There's reasons why they say this, right? They say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. We say no, this is new. That, so they came up with this, said Augustine said it early on, but the church never adopted it because it's not true. And they adopted it in the 11th century, like 1054, 1054, okay? So we say, no, 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 God the Father is the source. Like, this is probably the main thing. They would say stuff that sometimes their, their Pope is infallible, right? We say, no, 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 any human being can sin. So there's little differences like this, okay? But generally speaking, they have the mysteries, the priesthood, the Eucharist, the confession, all of this stuff. So what do you find in the Catholic Church? You find saints, okay? So where do you find a saint? You automatically have the... Truth in the sense that God definitely agrees with this church. With the dogma of the church, the life of the church. If not, there would be no saints. You understand? When it comes to the Protestant world, many, many Protestant Christians are, are very, very pious. You know what pious means? It means they're, they're good people. They could be humble people, people that truly, genuinely love God and care for Him and really like give their lives to Him in many, many ways, which is really, really nice. Okay? But we don't find, and you will not find, saints in the Protestant Church. So here I'm not discussing, uh, are these people going to heaven, not going to heaven? We pray that they go to heaven. Right, and I do not see a person that really humbly, you know, and generally gives his or her life to God, and God will reject them because of certain misunderstandings. Some people know the truth and they reject it. That's different. Others, they just that's what they've learned growing up, and and they really love Christ and they have faith. Like I, I just heard recently of this like Protestant woman. Then um, she had so much faith. She uh, at some point she got a tumor in her brain. And she woke up in the hospital. After she woke up, she realized she was, she was blind. You know what her reaction was? Her reaction was, thank God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, because now I am blind. Why is she saying this? Not because God is angry and God wants to be, no, no, no. 
But because she understood that now that she has this weakness, this additional weakness, she will live even more by faith, trusting in God. Okay, some people are like so beautiful, right? But because of the lack of liturgy that they have, so the Protestants, for example, they're very different. You go to a church, we call it, they call it a church, but in reality, it's like a stadium, like it's like an amphitheater, and someone is giving a sermon, and there's like, you know, spiritual songs and things like that, but that's it. And it's a lot of emotions and up and downs, and like even, even the spiritual songs are like that. Right, even the sermons are like that, and 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 who has belief today? And you raise your hand, but in reality, like what, what you end up realizing, unfortunately, again, I'm not trying to. I'm just stating things as they are. I'm not trying to blame anybody at all, whatsoever. Right, is that sometimes we get to know stuff, but but because the Eucharist is lacking, because the priesthood is lacking, therefore the confession is lacking, right? Because of the, all of these things, you, you're not able to really unite with God. And that's why we have certain things we have to understand. And therefore the topic of today, because it's, it's very important. So often when you speak to someone that is Protestant, and you want to discuss with them the faith, for example. So do you guys know when Protestants started? When does that whole movement started? With which year approximately? Which century? Hmm. After that. 95 thèse, 95 thèse, thèse de... Martin Luther? Yeah. Yeah. But when was that? Um, yes. Like, Very good. So, Sakamasi started in 1517, and it was official in 1521. Okay? So, 16th century. Okay? Right? So, it's a, a whole movement that started very very late right and it started because of martin luther because there were issues so so the protestants they came out of the catholic church so at this point the catholic church was on its own and there was a few things that were not right at all and then the protestant movement started from there right but actually martin luther originally did not want to separate from the catholic church he just wanted to reform the church, okay, to, to bring goodness back into the church because there were some things that were done that were not acceptable, okay? But since he saw that there was no way around this, then it started becoming, you know, a church on its own. So when you speak to someone that is Protestant, for example, they'll always tell you, where is that written in the Bible? Where is that written in the Bible? Show me where it's written in the Bible. It's like, baby, calm down. <laughs> okay, that's not necessarily how Christianity works. And that's the whole subject of today. Okay? Is everything meant to be written in the Bible? For example, we know that like smoking weed is a sin or smoking cigarettes is a sin. Is that literally written in the Bible? No. Okay? Is addiction to my cell phone, which is a sin, written in the Bible? No. Why is that? Because the Bible, not only it's written in the first century, it is not meant to have everything. It was never meant to have everything. Yes. Uh, they also mentioned that Christianity is only like about the Bible, it's also about the person who writes the Bible. Kikitsa? 
also new class Christianity is not only about like you take everything directly from the Bible, it's also about the person of Christ, like Hebrews. Who says this? Who who says this is, is my question? Yeah. Well, actually, so so because the reason why I'm asking you this is because, like, often the Protestant world, their main focus, whether they do it on purpose or not, but but that's you know when your discussions with them, their main focus is the Bible, okay. In the Catholic world, their main focus, they say, like, the God gave authority to the Church, which He did, by the way. So God said to the apostles, the twelve, that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. So the Holy Spirit will guide the church into all truth, right? So at this point, the tradition in the church, there's, there's an authority in the church. And in the Catholic world, that authority is very, very like um, present, which is present in all churches. But they, can, they take it to the point that they can say things that not necessarily, you know, go with scripture or, or or they take it an extra step that is, that is too far so we have tradition or authority of the church in the catholic world you have the protestant world which is all about scripture orthodox life is focused on the person of christ and, and that's the difference right and the person of christ he's a person he's not an idea he's not something random that I pray to. He's not a verse that I learn by heart or a psalm that I learn by heart without living it because my purpose is unity with him. That includes the authority of the church. It includes scripture as well. And it's a combination of all of these things, this entire life. That's why when we look at iconography, for example, we say this is theology in colors. So it's the life of the church in color. When we speak about hymnology, we say this is the life of the church in tunes, right? And all of these things are meaningful. Because Christ, when he came in Matthew 28, when he was raised from the dead, what did he say? First of all, was the Bible written? Was the Bible written? No, it was not written. Did Christ write the Bible before resurrecting or ascending? No, absolutely not. Right? But Christ told what to his disciples? He told them, you know, he gave them power and he gave them the priesthood and he go, told them, go, disciple all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When he says disciple all nations, what does he mean? Yes. Yeah, preach to them. Okay, and after they have believed, what happens? Baptize them. Is that the beginning or the end of my salvation, baptism? The beginning. And then what? Guide them. Teach them. But what does it mean by guide them and teach them? Show them something theoretical? No. To really, discipling means give them the life of the church, the life that I have given you, you need to give that to them as well. That's what discipling means. Right? So I'll give you an example. So what does it mean? So, so right now, what, what we're doing here is part of discipling. But you know what else is part of discipling? It's let's say when you, when you commit a sin and you go to your father of confession and the father of confession gives you sometimes a canon, which we rarely do today because people are like, they, they get upset at this stuff like that. But it's like, no, you need to, let's say you, you stole something. Usually, 
usually the priest should not just absolve you. He should absolve you because you've offered repentance and tell you, go give the money back. Go give the thing back. Why? But I confessed. It's because life is not theoretical. Like that hurt that you get from going back, apologizing to a friend, giving the money back, the chocolate bar that you saw, whatever it is, that teaches you how to live. Right? And that's the Christian life. The monks in the early centuries, they would do crazy stuff. There's a story, <laughs> there's a story of a monk that, you know, he, he, he was going through spiritual trouble and so on. And, and at some point, like his spiritual father, he wanted him to teach, to teach him what is the consequence of sin. So you know what he told him to do? Something really crazy. These, these are monks of the early centuries, so, so they're really hardcore, okay? So nobody's going to do this today, but they're, they're really hardcore. So he told him, walk in the desert, right? Have barely any clothes on you, okay? And put on you like pieces of meat. Why is that? Hmm? Yeah, animal meat. Yes. And animals are the Yes, Satra. So as he would walk, the animals would see him and see the meat. And obviously animals are animals, right? So they were hungry. So they would jump on him. They would not hurt him directly, but they would eat the meat. And then he would get all sorts of scratching on him. He would bleed a bit and stuff. He told him to do this for one reason. You know what the reason is? He wanted to teach him. You see yourself now, how, how, how messed up you are, how hurt you are. That's exactly what sin does to the soul. So when I sin, imagine like this is the type of lessons they would get. So when I sin, this is how my soul looks like. So I stand in front of God in prayer, I'm not able to pray, okay? So, so because I need healing, and that's when it happens in confession. Repentance, confession, and the Eucharist heal my soul. But this is how the church will teach people how to live life. That's the, the idea of discipling. Again, this is a very exaggerated example. That's how it was. But, but that's what orthodoxy is about. And you find this also, also in the Catholic Church. And therefore, because this unity with Christ is there, then you also have saints. So when it comes again to the Protestant world, for example, so we said they started in the 16th century, right? Some guy, not Martin Luther actually, believed that the body and blood of Christ were body and blood for real. That's what he believed. Even as a Protestant, that's what he believed. That's why the church still follows Martin Luther. They're called the Lutheran Church, which exists till today. They actually believe the body and blood are true body and blood. But most Protestants, they would say it's what? It's a symbol. It's empty. It's not real. Right? So the guy that came up with this is a guy called Zwingli. Like that's his family name. Okay? He came after Martin Luther. Right? So this guy comes and says, no, no, no. This is symbolic. This is not real. It's like Habibi, like... You know, you don't understand. Like, the church has been living. So how do we know things are, things are true? 
If I look at the entire church in the first centuries, in the entire world, so not only in Egypt or in Rome or whatever, in the entire world, throughout the whole time, they believed it was body and blood, true body, true blood. They lived a liturgy. They partook of the Eucharist. Some guy comes 1,600 years later, and he tells me something new. I tell him, Amen? Or I tell him, where, where do you take this stuff from? Oh, but look, it's written, God said, do this in remembrance of me. So that's when you talk to them, that's always the verse that comes up. It's written, do this in remembrance of me. It's like, yeah, but does that say it's a symbol? No, he's saying, do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me, which is anamnesis in Greek, it means whatever I have done with you that last supper, the Eucharistic meal, right, on that great Thursday, I want you as the church to relive this. Do this remembrance of me means to relive this. Not because it's symbolic, but because it's real. And that's why when we come in liturgy, do we use the words remembrance of me? Do this remembrance of me? We use it in liturgy. Why do we use it in liturgy? Because in liturgy, we are remembering him in the sense that we are reliving that same moment as Christ or with Christ in the Last Supper. What does that mean? So when we pray a liturgy, which we'll talk about this year, right? That liturgy is the participation of the same supper. It's not a new supper. It's as if we go above time, right? And Christ went above time and we are joined with him. And we, have, we are partaking of that same meal. So we're sitting with the apostles at that table and Christ is giving us his body and blood to drink. That's, that's what happens in liturgy. And that's why I do this in remembrance of me. And that's why in John 6, he would say things like, you know, this is my body is food in deed. My blood is drink in deed, right? He who does not eat my body, does not drink my blood, has no life in him. You don't have true life without eating the body and blood of Christ. He's so, so real about it. And he went on and on and on and on, re-emphasizing the point. And at the end, in John 6, verse 66, some of his disciples, not the 12, others, they left him. And in other words, they were saying, this dude is crazy. What, what does he mean, eating his body and drinking his blood? We can't understand this. And they left him. What was his reaction? No, please come back. Forgive me. I, you misunderstood me. I wasn't clear enough. Was that Christ's reaction? What was his reaction? Let them go. And he told the disciples, the twelve, you want to also go away? Fadalo. Because the truth is the truth. And then St. Peter responded and said what? Lord, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Because that's a reality. Right? And then in, in 1 Corinthians, St. Paul says that some people are sick and some people are dead because they partake of the body and blood in an unworthy manner. Some people die, some people die. And he went all out on him, on them. He went crazy on them, St. Paul. But why would people die and get sick if the bread is like normal bread? But that's not the point. The point is, a dude comes afterwards in the 16th century, says it's not true because it says remembrance of me, whatever else he might have thought 
But the church has lived this for 1600 centuries all around the world from the beginning. So, so which one is right? So the idea, unfortunately, and that's what I want to tackle today, it's not about, it's not only about what's written in the Bible, because not everything is written in the Bible. It's about the life of the church. And this life of the church, imagine this huge circle, which is the life of the church, which you try to live by and disciple, right? The bigger portion in that life is the Bible. It's scripture. But what else do we have? We have the hymns that teach us our faith. We have the icons. We have the church fathers and their writings. We have the church history. All of these things together, we see clearly the life of the church. And then you put the, the pieces of the puzzle together. It makes perfect sense. You guys follow? So often, like, and it happens until today, and I even have some servants that, you know, a Protestant guy, tell them, what is that written in the Bible? They don't even know how to answer. That, that's, that's, not how, that's not how the discussion should go. Yeah, we can answer because it's written in the Bible, but it's not only about that. So, you guys said earlier that Christ did not write the Bible. Obviously, we know this, right? So, who wrote the Gospel of St. Mark? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so, the Gospel of St. Mark was written by St. Mark. When was that written, approximately? In the first century. Yeah, first century, but approximately. Which decade? No, that's another Gospel. So St. John is written in about 98, so 90 to 100. That's the last one. The last book of the New Testament that was written is the Gospel of St. John. So yeah, so some say in the 40s, some say in the 60s. Okay? And that would be the first Gospel. And then Matthew and Luke were written in the 60s or 80s. Okay, that's, that's what you say. Probably the 60s. Okay, so probably 40s for St. Mark, 60s Matthew and Luke, and John in the 90s. So wait a second. The first church that lived, was the church strong or weak? Was it strong or was it weak? Strong. It was very strong. Where do we see this? In which book in the Bible? Which book talks about the beginning of the church? The book of Acts. So in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, you see how the church lived in the beginning, how St. Peter, St. Paul had all this authority, the rest of the apostles, right? And all the miracles that they would do, right? And you see it in the, in the history of the church as well, in the church father writings, right? Such a strong church. How are they a strong church? Was the Bible written? So when does the church start? When Christ what sends what? The Holy Spirit. In the year, which year was that? Approximately. 30, 33, yeah, right. Is the Bible written there? Is there a gospel that is written? Was St. Paul, even Paul at that point? He was still Saul. He didn't write any epistles. So, so did he have a Bible? No. So most of the time in the New Testament, when it talks about Scripture, it refers to the Old Testament. There was no New Testament written yet. Yet the church was the most powerful church that were, right? And you're not going to find a church that was as powerful as the church. But they didn't have Bible. How were they that powerful? How were they, they that powerful? Yes. Exactly. They lived with Christ. How? Through what? Through? 
church. Liturgy. Eucharist. Right? Which is the church. Through the Holy Spirit in them. Yet none of the stuff was actually written. So, the Bible was not written, yet the church was powerful. Why was the Bible written? So, if we talk about the Gospels, why were the Gospels written? To move on information Very good. So, so, as they lived, the apostles were eyewitnesses of Christ. They saw him, they heard him, they touched him, like St. John says in his epistle, they've handled him, right? And now they want to pass this on. Obviously, the oral tradition was very strong at the time. It's not like the telephone game that people like, people compared to the telephone game, it's not, it was not like this at all. They would like sit them and teach them heavily what was uh, being lived, right? But because also heresies, you know what a heresy is? Right? These false ideas were coming up and the apostles wanted to correct them and they wanted to pass on the correct information for the future generations written, right? So they started writing. St. Mark, St. Paul, I'm talking about, sorry, not St. Paul, St. Mark, St. Luke, St. Matthew, St. John. St. Paul was writing epistles. So I'm writing a letter to someone, St. Peter, St. John as well. They were writing epistles. And then that epistle was guided by the Holy Spirit and became part of Scripture. But the purpose was actually to send a message to a church in Ephesus, to a church in Philippi, and so on, right? So the, the, the New Testament started to be written in that way, and now it became part of that New Testament. So who wrote the New Testament? The disciples. The disciples, the disciples are the leaders of the church. So which one came first, church or Bible? Church was there, which is the body of Christ himself, way before anything was ever written in the New Testament. So why am I a Christian today and why do I live the way I live? Is because Christ and his disciples lived it in the first century, not because it's written in the Bible. However, Part of that life is also written in the Bible. You guys get it? So ultimately, the real reason why we do what we do is because Christ did it, the disciples did it, and from generation to generation, it happened. But none of the things that we do contradicts Scripture. Because we said the Bible is the bigger portion of the life of the church. Just give me one second, because I just want to like bring that point home first. So who wrote the Bible? The church. Church came first. The church leaders wrote the Bible. Now, when I want to understand a verse in the Bible, something I don't comprehend. So I read this verse that says, do this in remembrance of me. And I don't understand what it says. What's the proper way of doing it? What, like, what's the proper way of answering my question? Is it to try to invent an answer or to go back to the author of the book? I go back to the author of the book, who is the church. 
And that's why I said in the beginning, if you talk about the two Orthodox families that have been disconnected for 1500 years, their faith, you know, 1500 years is a long time. There's a lot of changes that happen. Yet when you compare their faith, it's 99% the same. Because that faith and that life came before scripture was actually written. You guys follow? So if I don't understand something, I go back to the church. So if I don't understand what it means when it says, do this in remembrance of me, I go and see what the church, I don't, again, I say things like this today because, you know, it's easy today. But in reality, in the 1600s, there's no internet, <laughs> there's no airplanes, there's no like, you know, whatever, any kind of social media. So you don't have access to people that way. So the, the Protestant world was got out or was divided from the Catholic Church. Did they know about the Orthodox world? Maybe slightly, but not enough. And what happens when you're hurt that way, when you see things that way? And the Orthodox life is close to the Catholic life in certain things. But again, at that point, the Catholic Church was not doing things that were proper. Right? So when you hear of tradition in the Orthodox Church, so someone that was hurt by, by bad tradition, and then he goes to another place and he hears of tradition, what's his reflex? Annoyed, right? Unhappy. He assumes it's the same type of tradition, so he keeps away from it as well. Right? So all of these little things led to where we are at today. But the reality is that we have to understand that that's not how life works. And that's why we, we always, in conversations with our friends that are Protestants, we um, encourage them to, to like widen their knowledge and stop asking stuff like, where is that written in the Bible? As if the Bible was written by Christ himself and the church always lived because the Bible said so. No, it's the Bible says so because the church first lived it. Okay, and again, I try to imagine, okay, so last year we spent a year together, right? Teaching me a bunch of things, doing a bunch of stuff, right? That's one year, and we met one hour a year, a, a week, right? Or, so if we just take this one hour a week, let's say it's 50 hours last year. And if I challenge any of you, or myself for that matter, to write down these 50 hours as detailed as possible, would I be able to write everything in that book? Right? Like how Candy was sitting in the middle where her hair was done that way and the hoodie that she's wearing and, and all of this. Can I write that level of detail? Can you put a life in a book? It's impossible. Impossible. And that's why the Bible does not include everything. It's impossible. Yet the Bible is the word of God. Right, And it leads us to repentance. So I'm not taking anything away from the Bible, but that's how we see the Bible. So even in liturgy, we take the Bible, we put it on top of our heads, saying that the Bible is the one that it's above my head and the Bible purifies me. It has power in it. But not everything is meant to be written by it. Is that clear? And that's why when we look at how we live life, we look at scripture, at tradition of the church, history of the church, church fathers, icons, hymns, and all of these things. So 
The Protestants, unfortunately, although again, many of them are, are fantastic, so I'm not trying to talk negative in any way, um, they don't have a liturgy, right? They don't have priests, so they have something called a pastor, but the pastor does not receive the Holy Spirit to be a priest. He's not called Father Whomever, right? He's the pastor. He's like, it's like Mr. Okay? They don't have the mystery of confession in the presence of the priest. The baptism is not done by Christ in the priest. Like, there's no priest to actually perform the mysteries. And many of them believe it to be just a symbol, like the Eucharist, right? They don't have the anointing of the sick. They don't have any of this stuff. But the problem is that this stuff is what unites you with Christ. Right? And that's why, like, and then by, like this, there's an extension to all of this. So if you speak to them about the saints, they, they, they won't like to hear the word saints. St. Mary, they say stuff about her, like, you know, they belittle St. Mary. Again, uh, some of them, some people belittle St. Mary in really unfortunate ways. And they say, yeah, she's, she's not ever virgin. So we believe, both Orthodox and Catholics, believe that St. Mary was a virgin before birth. During birth, which is a huge mystery, which has reasons that I will not explain now because I'll confuse you. Okay, During birth and after birth. So she's ever virgin. And that's why in the icon, you see here on her shoulder, there's a star. On her forehead is a star. And on the other shoulder, there would be a star as well, but Christ is, hi is hiding the other shoulder. But St. Mary's icon, she has these stars here, which means vir virgin before, during, and after birth. So they would say stuff like, like, no, yeah, she was a virgin, but she was not virgin during or after birth. They don't necessarily consider her a saint. Um, they say that St. Joseph actually married her so so we say that saint joseph was engaged to her but they never got married they say that they were married because and the confusion comes from because at that time a person you are engaged to you would call them your wife like it's when you once you're engaged at that time you're ultimately married it's just a matter of time okay there's a whole process that i, that I will not say now explain now okay but that's how it worked so when you're engaged to someone you could already call her your wife Although you're not married yet, like you haven't consumed the marriage. You didn't have any sexual intercourse, is what I'm trying to say. The marriage is not consumed. But they think that the marriage was consumed. That Joseph and Mary had sexual intercourse and St. Mary had more kids afterwards. And when they look at the Bible and it talks about the brothers of Jesus, which we know that these are his cousins, Right? They say no, it's the, it's his brothers, right? So, so why why all of these differences? Because when I read the Bible, and I don't go back to the author of the Bible, and I start coming up with stuff on my own. Oh, it says this. Oh, it's as if the Bible came from heaven, and that's what dictates our faith. What dictates our faith is Christ who came from heaven, and lived the Christian life and passed it on. And part of this is written in Scripture. Okay. Yes. No, but if they say that like Virgin Mary had like other kids after mm -hmm. just ask them where is that in the Bible? They won't be able to answer. No, yeah, but ask us the same question so we can just 
Yeah, but so their, their answer will be, oh, look, it's written brothers, right? So and then and then you'll you will respond, yeah, the, the brothers are cousins, and there's a way. Like I'm gonna do a talk on this soon, or maybe a video on this soon. There's a way to to actually prove that these are cousins, not brothers. But you have to like really dig deep, deep, deep into the details of Bible, like to to, to figure it out. But that that's where the problem lies. So so I'm not saying that they come up with stuff randomly, but they misunderstand certain things in Scripture that leads to this. You understand? That's because they've removed the life of the church and focused only on the scripture. And by the way, the Protestants, there's not only one type of Protestant. There's many types. So there's like Baptists, like Evangelicals, Pentecostals, Seventh-day Adventists. And they believe in certain things, they believe different stuff. Like for example, Baptists believe that once you have faith in Christ, you can do any sin in the world. The blood of Christ is enough to save you and you're guaranteed salvation. Which is insane. It's insane. And it's completely untrue. And many verses in the Bible say completely against this. And unfortunately, the reality of the people that follow that type of teaching will be not the resurrection of life. Right? So certain things are so dangerous. You know, so they, they completely eliminate any kind of good works. The evangelicals will say, no, 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 good works are there. And it goes along with your faith and it's because you have faith, which that, that they have, they're correct in saying. Because we're not saved by our own works. We are saved by our works that are, are done within our faith. Yes. Okay, well, I remember when you gave us topic about the authenticity of the Bible. Uh, you said that our faith is not only based on what is written in the Bible, but on the person of Jesus Christ. And, but you said when people ask us always that written in the Bible, but it's not like anything that is church inherited is is con like contradicts the Bible. It's like there's nothing that like I don't understand why would they would ask where is that in the Bible? Because they do not they don't necessarily think that way, but they act as if the Bible came in a sense from heaven. Whatever is there, you fulfill. Whatever is not there, you don't you don't fulfill. Right, so for example, so if we speak about the priesthood in the Bible, it's clear that priesthood is there, but it's it's not there. So they focus on certain verses, not other verses. They don't understand that there's two types of priesthood as well, like the literal one, like myself, and the spiritual priesthood. So because of it's like it gets confusing because of all of these things, they come up with their own conclusions. So, in other words, they ignore the first 1,600 years. They barely know anything about history. And all they know is about Bible. Right? And, 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 but how, how do you understand? So, for example. So, Abraham says, not Abraham. Uh, St. Paul says that Abraham is saved by faith, not works. St. James says that faith without works is dead and you have to show your faith by your works so very direct opposite contradictory verses which one takes priority but that's a wrong question it's not that which one takes priority they're both right but saint paul was speaking about which kind of works the old testament works that are dead so you have to understand the context 
since James is speaking about the New Testament works that are done through faith. So they both go together. But when you remove that understanding from that life of the church, and you're just studying as if you're studying any kind of magazine or, or biological book, whatever it is, biology book, then you, you end up getting confused. And, and, and that's what happens. And then you have to start prioritizing a verse over the other. So it's, it's, it's the lack of depth that leads to that which creates all of these questions and all of these confusions and all of their decisions that lead them to be not as united with Christ as, as, as we are. But the also, this, the, again, I want to be clear. It's very clear that God is working with them. So I'm not saying these people are not Christians, these people are going to hell. I'm not saying any of this stuff. God is working with them according to the capacity they are allowing Him to work but not to the fullness of the God's design. Okay? Yes. How did... Like, people wrote like the... Like, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they, they were like, wrote in different, like, me and different places. Yeah. How did all come into one book? And so the Old Testament... So, so uh, and that's a very good point, actually. Because so, so the Bible, what is the Bible? The Bible is God working through His people. And some, and some of these people, they actually start writing things. And they're ov often biographies or just a description of the events that passed, that happened. Right? So, this is, so, Bible, the Bible summarizes the life of God with His people. Right, so stuff happened to Samuel, to David, to Saul, all of these things, and they were written. Right, so once these were written, in the Old Testament, Ezra the priest collected all of the stuff. Right, in the New Testament, Saint Athanasius is the first one. Obviously, it was there before, but Saint Athanasius, in one of his letters, actually in the fourth century, he declares this is all the New Testament canon. So the New Testament books that we believe in. And the rest of the church in the entire world agreed, and this is what we live by. It wasn't in a book like this, they were all like scrolls. They're all separate books. So Bible actually comes from the word Biblia, which means many books. The Bible is not one book. It's many books put together. That's what Biblia means. So the Gospel of St. Mark was not necessarily meant to be right after the Gospel of St. Matthew. That's not okay. These these orders were put by human people. For example, the letters of Saint Paul, you'll find them. They're all written in order of length, not in chronological order. But, but there is a chronological order to things. But like in the Bible, it's written Romans is the longest one. You understand? And then and so on and so forth. And because Hebrews, some people are, are saying that it's written by Paul. Others are saying it's not written by Paul. It's put at the end of the books of Paul because of the uncertain um, authorship of the book. We believe it is St. Paul. But who's the, who's the author of that book? It's mainly or ultimately the Holy Spirit. So whether it's written through St. Paul or not, it doesn't matter. Yeah, like, suppose many, like, for example, uh, Aziz, like, someone made, like, in Europe, and, like, every word, word. Yes, so, so it's, it's copied. It's copied, and, and then we have like a copy of this. So the church as a whole says, yes, this is part of Scripture. But it, it has many copies. It's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't need to be the 
original one per se. So if you have, if you write something, and you have 10, 15 people copying it, in, even in different languages for that matter, right? And you know, how do you know that the first one is accurate? Is that when you compare all of those ones, do you all say the same thing? If you compare 15 copies of the original and half the copies, yani, they have one chapter that is missing. There was no chapters at the time, but anyways. Okay, so th that's a problem. Right? But when you have all the copies around the world, right, say the same thing about the Gospel of John or the letter to the Romans, whatever it, it was that is written, yeah, there might be like typo mistakes, you know, punctuation that was forgotten, things like that, which happens all the time, but you still know that the whole thing is accurate. So you don't necessarily need the original. So, but the church knew, they knew St. Paul wrote this. They knew these, these people talked face to face, they've met, right? They knew St. Mark, who is, who is St. Mark, who is St. Matthew, they, they know each other. And therefore they gather and they collect. The church decides, so the church is the one that decides which books are part of this Biblia. Right? Because the church is ultimately the author of these books. And glory be to God forever. Amen. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.